Well, good morning and welcome. We're in week seven of the race series as we look at Jesus' teaching uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. And we're looking at what is it that sustains us and what is it that drains us? What is it that fuels us in the race of life? And when I think about what sustains us and what drains us, I think about a story my friend told me a few weeks ago. Uh, he was a college athlete, and in the summertime, he was training in the morning, and this one summer he happened to be working for a painting and drywalling company. And uh, he was trying to save as much money away during the summer so uh, that he would have you know, money during the school year. And he realized that zebra cakes were pretty calorie-dense food, and they were only 99 cents a box. So he thought, he started doing the math and thinking, man, I could really put away a lot of money if I could survive off of 99 cents a day for food. And so he put his plan into action, uh, only eating zebra cakes, disciplined, uh, I might say. Um, and after two days, surprisingly, um, he found himself feeling like complete garbage and never wanting a zebra cake for uh, a very long time. And, and I feel like this is the perfect analogy of what it means, of what things that f- sustain us and things that drain us. And this is why we're going through the Sermon on the Mount this summer, so that uh, we can feast on what is good for us and, and consume what fuels us and sustains us, and, and not zebra cakes and the things that drain us. Uh, this morning, I'll be looking at uh, what it means to, to be salt of the earth and light of the world. But before I do that, I want to jump in uh, and look at what precedes that, so we can kind of understand how to approach this passage of Scripture. So, when you're following along in your Bible, Matthew 5... We're going to be starting at verse 3 here, just briefly looking at what precedes this. So Jesus starts out his, uh, his Sermon on the Mount by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. So this is the inaugural address of the blessings of grace. Jesus is saying, when you are empty, blessings on you. When you are filled up and pouring out to others, blessings on you. He's saying, he's going to be saying here in a soon, I want to use you to bring hope and restoration, true and abundant life to the people around you, to bless a broken world. And regardless of the state that you're in, when you are a follower of Jesus Christ, what he's saying here is blessings on you. So you, you begin to see that it has nothing to do with what we bring to the table, with our prerequisites, with our qualifications. And it has everything to do with the grace of Jesus Christ. So he starts out, first and foremost, his address to his people on the Sermon on the Mount by saying, blessings on you for following me. And then he shifts and begins to engage his people in an outward global ministry. And I'll be picking up in verse 13 here. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, and neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So he starts out by saying, you are the salt of the earth. And I feel like we can get a really good idea of what our purpose is as Christians when we understand what the functions of salt are. Because he's making an analogy here. And I think we can boil it down to to three things here. The functions of salt are to purify, sustain, and enhance. 
So first of all, the purify. Uh, in that time, salt was used actually to, to purify, to clean wounds. Uh, that's where the salt, the saying, uh, rubbing salt in the wound comes from. Uh, it didn't feel very good, uh, obviously. Uh, but it was useful uh, in cleaning out the infection in wounds. And today it's used, you can uh, flush out your sinuses and remove, you know, like sinus infection crud uh, with uh, that saline solution, salt solution there. Uh, so to purify. Well, for Christians, it is our duty to, to show grace where it is unwarranted and truth where lies are destroying life, to purify. Uh, second, sustain. The function of salt is to sustain, right? There was a time, believe it or not, when there weren't refrigerators and freezers. It's hard to imagine. But they used uh, salt to preserve foods. We all know this, to, to sustain the shelf life of, of meats and fish and everything like that. So they had food in all seasons. Well, in the same way, it is the function of believers in Jesus Christ to sustain what is good, what is true and noble and right and pure and lovely. If anything is praiseworthy or admirable, it is our duty as believers in Jesus Christ to sustain those things in our world. I think Edmund Burke put it perfectly when he said, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. And third, the function of salt to enhance. We all know how salt enhances our life, right? When you put a little bit of salt on your steak uh, and it just brings that thing to life or you in, in, in baking or cooking and it just adds uh, a totally different dimension to, to the food. Or in, in my uh, eyes, the contrast between salty and sweet is a beautiful thing, especially like M&Ms and popcorn. Um, can I get an amen for that one, right? Um, <clears throat> so uh, a pretty good thing, right? Well, the, uh, the functions of, of Christian to enhance the lives of people around us, to encourage, to empower, to build relationships, and to bless a broken world. So all of this could be overwhelming. If you're sitting there and your mind works like mine does, some of you might be thinking this way, uh, you're going to be thinking, okay, well, I need to purify, sustain, enhance. Purify, and sustain, enhance. And this is what I'm going to remember to do. And I'll probably like, put it on my mirror in the morning so I can remember to do all of these things. And so when I wake up in the morning, I'm going to be thinking about purify, sustain, and enhance. And then, well, I, you know, and then I need to remember, you know, try and be a good father and um, you know, a good husband and, and that there, be a good band director and then all these other things. And then it's just like it immediately becomes overwhelming and then we get burnout, right? Zebra cakes. So this is what, this is like Jesus is like saying this is not what it's about. He's saying you are salt of the earth. He's making a declaration here. He's not saying, hey, try and be saltier. He's saying you are the salt of the earth. And you see, being salt of the earth is a gift of Jesus' presence. It starts first and foremost with the connection to Him, the source of life. Because in Christ you have been brought to fullness. And when we believe in Him, we are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Colossians 2, 9-10 through 10 says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness, who is head over every power and authority. In Christ, you have been brought to fullness. It has nothing to do with what we bring to the table. It has everything to do with God's grace and his love powering us to bless the people around us. I'll make my point with this story. Uh, a, few, a few years ago, I was down in Des Moines at a Bandmasters Association conference and uh, <clears throat> stretching my legs, it was day two, and you know, been in a hotel for like two days, you know, in clinics and everything like that. And so I went, walked around downtown, and 
got some fresh air and found an outdoor area to, to sit and was just sitting there reading for a while. And to my right, there was a, a couple standing there talking and they were kind of having a disagreement and things just didn't really seem right. Um, they were dressed pretty shabbily and um, it was just a really hurried conversation. And then the guy left and uh, it just, I don't know, things just didn't look good. And I just sat there minding my own business, uh, just kept reading and just tried to ignore it. And so the, I was looking at my watch and about an hour, I was thinking, okay, in about an hour, the next clinic's starting, I should probably get back to the hotel. So I went to get up and before I could move, I just felt in the pit of my stomach. Like God saying, Eric, stop. I want you to ask her if she knows who my son Jesus is. And my first reaction was, oh, really? Like right now, I, this, this is really awkward probably, and I was uncomfortable. I'm not sure that I want to do this. I, I, Eric, I want you to ask her if she knows who my son Jesus is. And I sat there for at least two minutes, probably it felt like 20, stewing over this. and like, okay, man, it's going to be really weird if I just sit here and ask her this. And like, I'm just like going over this in my head. But I was like paralyzed, like I could not move. I was like, okay, God, I will. All right, you ask me to, I will. And so I turned to her and I said, ma'am, that's why I was supposed to ask you if you know uh, who Jesus is. And she turned back, she turned over to me and she goes, of course I know who Jesus is. Doesn't everybody? And looked back down at the ground and I thought, Okay, I've really done it now. I am going to go, though, okay? So I was preparing myself to get up and leave as fast as I possibly could without looking like I was running away from her. And before I could move, she turned back to me and she said, Why would you ask that? I said, Well, it might sound kind of odd, but I just I felt like God was just telling me that I need to ask you this. And what followed was an hour-long conversation of her spilling out her life story of tragedy. She had just returned from Las Vegas and seen a friend killed right in front of her. She was in an abusive relationship, one after another, and she had been a foster kid growing up that had lived in multiple homes and was abused physically and verbally, sexually. She had a kid uh, that she had to give up for adoption because she was now homeless. She was 25, and the night that I met her, she was literally at the rock bottom, lowest point of her life. And in her eyes, she was a failure in every sense of the word. She told me that the night before, she had almost committed suicide. She could not forgive herself for all of the things that had happened and all of the things that she had done and failed And she didn't think that she deserved forgiveness. And I'm sitting here in this situation thinking, what do I have to tell her? What am I going to say? It's not like I can say, yeah, I've been there. And And I just said, God, just come and just speak through me. Let your words just come through me. And I began to share with her the hope and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of his redemptive salvation and his forgiveness, that when we ask for his forgiveness and accept his gift of salvation, and and he forgives us, and we say, but God, what about my past? He says, what past? And we say, God, what about my sin? He says, what sin? Because he doesn't see us in that any longer, but he sees us in the likeness of Christ because he has made us new in him because we are a new creation in him. And I was able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with her. 
And in that, that time that I was talking with her over that course of that hour, it was amazing to see just even physically how she changed, just like smiling. And you could see almost the, the burden coming off. While nothing externally had changed, everything internally was being turned upside down. And at one point in the conversation, she asked what I did for a living. And I told her I was a band director. And she laughed. I, I don't know why that was funny. She, she's like, well, I expected you to be like a youth pastor or something. I was like, oh, I'm a band director, I guess. Um, and, then, and then throughout the conversation, then she kept, like, it was just funny because she kept going back. She's like, I just can't believe God would use a band director from not even this town to come sit next to me in the lowest point of my life and ask me if I knew who Jesus was. And I said, it's because you are worth it and he will do whatever it takes to get you back. Where once she was unsure if God had existed anymore, she had encountered the one true God orchestrating these events to encounter her, to win her back And hear the hope and the truth of the gospel in her life. Now, I don't tell you this story so you'll think, wow, Eric did something great. I tell you this story because in spite of me and my selfishness and my, uh, my lack of ability to formulate sentences sometimes or my desire to run away from awkward situations or whatever it is, in spite of all of those things, God was able to do something great. Just because I was able to say, yes, God, I will. Because of the relationship I have with him and knowing him and his love and his grace. And that is what propelled me outward in that moment, knowing that if that is God saying that, he has something very specific that he wants to say to her and bless her life. So, yes, God, I will. And that is the source of love and grace that propels us to be what he calls us, which is salt of the earth. In Christ, we have been brought to fullness where our weaknesses are made into strengths. We operate in his fullness, allowing us to be the salt of the earth, to do what might seem impossible, things beyond ourselves. And regardless of our weaknesses or what we think our inabilities are, we are propelled by his love and his grace to do what he calls us to, to bless a broken world. This is our calling, our identity, and our purpose. And then, he gives us a warning. In verse 13, but if a salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Well, I stayed awake long enough in chemistry class to know that salt is a pretty stable compound. And uh, so this seemed kind of odd to me at first. Well, how can salt lose its saltiness if, if Sodium chloride is a, is a stable compound. But people would have understood this well because at that, at that time, salt was harvested from the Dead Sea and there were a lot of impurities in the water, uh, boron, bromides, and magnesium. And what would happen is the salt would dilute in the water and then recrystallize with the impurities. And it would actually render the salt useless in its function. And not only useless, but really detrimental in its function. And so when they would use it to preserve food, it would leave this rancid taste in the food. And it would spoil the food like it would, they would have to throw it out. It would not be edible. It would be ineffective for, for cleaning and purifying wounds, that sort of thing. And it definitely would not enhance your food. Um, it would do the exact opposite. It would ruin your food. And so what Jesus is saying here is that just like the salt that would be rendered useless to be thrown out and no, good for nothing other 
yielded and to be trampled in the streets by men. That's what happens when we separate ourselves from him. So Jesus is engaging us in outreach and his ministry and, and, and our purpose, but saying, warning, don't lose your compositional structure here, your connection to me. So you see, we have sodium chloride when bonded together is, is a stable compound. And we have us and we have Jesus Christ. And when we're bonded with him, we are one of the most stable things in all of creation. But when we separate ourselves from him, then what happens is we begin to bond with the impurities in this world. And not only do we become useless in our functions that he intended for us, but even detrimental in what he has intended for us and completely missing out on the blessings of grace. Now, this, this can be a, a sneaky thing or a direct thing. In our arrogance, we can deny him. In our apathy, we can squander what has been invested to us. We can start to believe the lie that we know better that God's word is only a suggestion. That really we should just follow our, our desires and our, our, our feelings and our own pleasures. That he's not our priority, but this self-centeredness causes us to miss out on the blessings that were truly intended for us. And we're no longer focused outward, but inward. Not propelled by the grace of Christ, but only self-service. And another way this can happen is, is disconnecting from the source, is when we, when we begin to think that, well, love is all we need. Love is really all we need to change the world. But it, the only reason that there is power in love is because God is at the source of love. Love is not all you need. And without this connection to the source, love will be diluted in its power. And it will never be enough. And this is why it says in 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love God, or anyone who does not love, does not know God. God is love. Love is not our God, but the Lord Almighty is our God, and love is who he is. And without him, you have taken away the true source of love that will bring life. And it is really life that we seek in love. So let us not live under these misconceptions or lies, but let us seek God and remain connected to the source that when he fills us up, when we are connected with him in relationship uh, and, and in and knowing him in his word and in prayer, that he fills us up, that we may pour out of a place of overflowing to the people around us, that his love may shine through us. So Jesus follows this warning Again, affirming us in our identity. And he says, you are the light of the world. Not try to be brighter, try to go and be the light of the world. He's saying, you are. He is declaring. When you are a follower of Jesus, you are the light of the world. And then he gives us a little encouragement, a little bit of a a giddy up in verse 15. And he says, uh, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bucket. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. So he's saying, people don't put lamps under buckets and neither will the Lord light us saying, follow me and beautify us nine times saying, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. And tell us twice that we are among the most important people on the face of the earth to bring hope and life and restoration and abundance of life to those around us, to bless people in their darkness and their hurt and their pain, to empower us. And then light us up 
and put us under a bucket. Our missional success is not up to us because the one who lights us will put us on the table for all to see that they may praise our Father in heaven. Second Corinthians 5.20 says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We are the billboard, the commercial, the advertisement. God is making his appeal through all of us here. But the important thing to remember is that it is never up to us to be good enough. And the only thing that is required is a willing heart. I'll make my point with this story. The darkest time in my wife and I's life. Five years ago, we, <clears throat> we found out that uh, Becky was pregnant. And... Uh, they were so overjoyed with the thought of uh, of having a child and and the blessing of that. And as we went into the twenty week ultrasound, we um, went in with anticipation. And the nurse said that there were some things that uh, didn't look right. There's some abnormalities, and that our daughter wasn't going to make it. It was crushing. It was debilitating. And we just felt in a place of despair and hopelessness as we went home grieving the life of our daughter. And shortly thereafter, almost 20 of our friends came over and gathered in the upstairs loft of our house shining the light of Jesus Christ as they prayed over us and ministered to us. And in our time of darkness where our lights felt dim and faintly there, we were surrounded by the compounding effect of light after light after light surrounding us, that from the heavens it must have looked like a wild fire at night. That in our darkness and our despair, people shine the light of Jesus Christ in on our hurt and our pain in a profound yet simple way. And it had nothing to do with what they brought to the table and had everything to do with them just being willing to follow God's calling, to come over and just to pray over us and to bless us in his name. It had nothing to do with what they brought to the table, but the grace and the love of God that was propelling them forward and blessing us in that time of darkness. And when we had a funeral for her, they were there beside us. And while the hurt and the pain was still there and raw and real in every way, God used them to usher in his hope and his comfort. This is what it means to be light of the world. He's saying, you are light of the world. Go and shine the light that I have put in you to bless people and their darkness and their despair and their hopelessness. Go and use what I have entrusted to you. You can bring life. And all it requires is for you to say, yes, God, I will. You are the light 
of the world. Shine for all to see. We are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Through knowing Jesus Christ, we discover who God has already made us. Wholeness is a gift at the beginning, not the end. And from nothing, we are made into something at the point of salvation. I'll close with this. My one challenge, the one thing that I want you to take with you today, I'm not going to heap guilt on you to do more, try harder. This is not a do more, try harder gospel. It is a gospel of grace and love. And this is why Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount with the inaugural address of grace and then propels us from that point into love and ministry and and engaging in a global ministry there. So the only challenge that I have for you is to engage in your relationship with Jesus Christ, that you may know him more beyond when it's convenient, beyond just Sunday morning, that on a daily basis, maybe we could give 1% of our 24-hour day, 24 minutes to know him more, to know who he has made us, to know his word, to talk with him in prayer. So that he can fill us up and so that we can pour out into the lives of the people around us from an infinite place of overflow. That we don't try and be good enough and do more on our own, but that from our relationship with the Lord, that is what then propels us outward. And first and foremost, that is our priority. And when His love and His grace fills you up and consumes you, you can do nothing but say, Yes, Lord, when He calls you. We are Christ's ambassadors. The call to be salt and light to Christians is not an invite. It is a declaration of the truth of our existence. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and your grace. God, that regardless of where we are, who we are, what our past is, your love covers over all. And God, not only that we are free to be reconciled with you, but God, that we get to know you personally and have a relationship with you. And God, that you would see us as worthy enough to participate in your ministry and into advancing your kingdom, into blessing other people, that you would choose to then, and from our brokenness and our sinfulness, God, to empower us to bless a broken world, that we get a play. God, we get a play in this game and we get to use what you have entrusted to us, God. Thank you that you call us salt and light. Thank you, Lord that you desire to use us in this way. God, you are good. Just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.